0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. An old farmer trying to build a plane in his village. A young man that gambles everything on the roaring stock market. A community transformed by a magical fruit that evokes vivid memories. A Chinese woman unable to understand her American partner. And people stuck in a train station, waiting for a train that never comes. These stories, among others, make up the la- make up Land of Big Numbers, the debut story collection by Tupping Chen. Chen's fiction spans a wide array of styles and narratives, from vignettes that feel like they could have been plucked from the newspapers, through surreal allegories for Chinese society, to character examinations of cross-cultural relationships. Tipping Chen is a fiction writer and journalist. She is a Wall Street Journal correspondent in Philadelphia who was previously based in Beijing and Hong Kong. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker, Granta, and Tin House. Today, Tipping and I talk about the different stories in Land of Big Numbers, and her choice of styles, narratives, and themes. We'll talk about how these stories are based on her time in China, as well as the differences between writing for fiction and writing for journalism. So, Tipping, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I want to talk about maybe first the story collection as a whole. Um, as I noted in the intro, it covers a, a wide array of styles, a wide array of themes and narratives from, from allegories for Chinese society to, you know, close examinations of cross-cultural relationships. Um, what kind of connects these various stories and what was your decision in terms of collecting them together in one collection?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm yeah really, really excited to be here and get to share about the book. Uh, the stories, of course, are most obviously connected by China. All of them are either set in China or are feature Chinese protagonists also in the US as well. Um, Beyond that, I think there are a lot of themes, too, that just arose very naturally out of my years living in China um, and that come through in the book, too. These questions you know, about what it means to live in a society of 1.3 billion people and, and how you try and find a sense of identity and meaning, even in um, a society where often you're living under tremendous constraints and where you're also often presented with moral dilemmas, uh, which characters in the book encounter um, in a variety of ways. And, you know, I th- I th- it, it, that takes the form of everything from, you know, a young woman, um, a promising student who decides to kind of give up that more promising academic path to become an online activist of sorts, um, to, you know, people who are you know, retired men and women who are in and out of love and, and trying to just essentially make lives for themselves, um, even in, yeah, sometimes um, incredibly difficult circumstances.
0: Um, I know this is probably a hard question because there's, you know, I'm sure you're fond of every story in this collection, but I wonder if you could kind of talk us through maybe one or two of of the stories from the collection that are perhaps your favorites.
1: Sure, yeah. So my favorite story in the collection is Flying Machine, which is uh, tells the story of a rural inventor, and um, he, you know, he's living in the countryside, and he has previously invented. Um, readers learn a robot that makes noodles, which um, was a detail I was really delighted to get to work into that story because it's actually one based on the um, story that I wrote for the Wall Street Journal about this trend in China of robot waiters as well as robot chefs that were um, being used in a number of restaurants as um, cost-saving and labor-saving devices. And also, as well, that is one story um, that is very much kind of plucked from the headlines. Um, The second thing that readers see him inventing or trying to invent is an airplane, which uh, was a headline I remember reading as a reporter um, in the local press, just seeing, and and not just on one occasion, but multiple occasions of reading about these um, farmers who. We're trying to build airplanes in the countryside and it just seemed like kind of a magical <laughs> and, and just very strange surprising thing and I that just sort of seized my imagination and so readers encounter you know they'll, they'll meet the character who I imagined um lay behind some of these stories I never actually got to go out and um write that story for not surprising for an American newspaper, it wasn't exactly a news story, um, but it was. It seemed like such a human story and a really compelling one, and so um, I I loved getting to write that story, which um, to me embodies, you know, there's a lot of tenderness in that story, and also a sense of, you know, you meet this character, Tzotzotl, this elderly farmer who's building this airplane who has never been on an airplane but has this incredible um, ambition, and he's very much in earnest about it, and he, and that to me you know, really speaks, the story speaks a lot about that side um, of China that I love so much, you know, which is so, you know, you meet so many people like and which were incredibly ambitious, um, but also have like this, this wonderful pragmatism too. You know, he, he decides he wants to fly. And so he rolls up his sleeves and, and tries to build an airplane.
0: So, so I hadn't realized, I think until after I finished the book, that some of these stories are based off of real stories you wrote for the Wall Street Journal. Um, other than flying machine, what are the other what What are the other stories that are based off of your off of your reporting in China?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess it, you couldn't quite say that they're based on their reporting, just more that I that there were um, images or motifs that I, that I did encounter in my reporting that made their way into stories, and sometimes it was in little details like for example, the new bot the the noodle making robots um, or elsewhere in that story um funeral strippers, which was another um, detail that I'd run into as a reporter um, if, of these um, this phenomenon of, of strippers at funerals you know in which someone dies then you decide um, you know you want you want to ensure good turnout and so you you decide to hire a, a stripper um, that was another detail that was very much something that um, was kind of something I'd encountered as a reporter and just thought was so fascinating and wanted to put into a story and um so there were, there were little details like that that are studded throughout the book um and as well you know i think some of the the questions also underlying stories like Lulu, which opens the collection and, and, you know, tells the story of these two twins that take these divergent paths, including the, the young woman who becomes kind of this online activist and citizen journalist who ends up in jail. I mean, that's not one that was directly um, inspired by any one particular story, but is absolutely the kind of story that I would run into um, frequently as a reporter there.
0: Um, So these stories, they're, they're, they're short vignettes. Um, in fact, I think none of them actually have the main, you know, tension be resolved. Um, why did you decide to write the stories in this way to kind of leave to 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 leave out any kind of conclusion? And I guess was it was a difficulty for you as the writer to sometimes leave the reader hanging with some of these questions?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think that to me, I mean, what I love so much about the short story form in a lot of ways is you you do get this window into someone's life, right? that is meaningful and important and pregnant with possibilities. And it's, it's like taking a snapshot. And I think for me, part of, I mean, I would write the stories, of course, you know, they necessarily sort of have an ending that, um, I think as, as you identify, you know, often doesn't tie everything up in a neat because A, I think that's often not how life is. And then B also too, I think, um, part of, part of it too, is wanting, I think the reader to also, you know, sort of sink into the story and project forward to like, you know, engage in a way that asks questions like, you know, here, m- meet, um, you know, a young man who's investing in the stock market and he's found himself in the situation. And, um, you know, where do you like at the end we're left, we see him facing the situation in a moment and, I, th- I think the way that, you know, the reader ends up having to answer questions sometimes that are, that are raised by stories and in, in some ways implicate himself in stories or herself in stories too, I think can be a powerful thing that short stories do just, they, they really are, you know, you're pulled in um, into this whole world that gets built very quickly. And then I think sometimes like it's that feeling of returning back to your own reality that can also be powerful and the juxtapositions too, between the stories and um, which, which is, not to say that I didn't know necessarily how the stories ended. I mean, even when I wasn't necessarily leading the reader directly there or saying, you know, epilogue, this is what happened. Um, I, I, I um, in a number of them, did, did, you know, even write endings for them um, and know where a character wound up, but um, didn't actually, um, you know, spell it out quite so literally for the reader.
0: So now I, I like to talk about some of the, I, I guess, go a bit deeper into some of the stories and some of the things that kind of connect them throughout the collection. Um, my first question is that several of the stories deal with cross-cultural relationships. Um, in fact, the the, the the parallel I draw is between, um, is between Beautiful Country, which features a Chinese woman and an American man, um, and then uh, Field Notes on a Marriage, which features a, I think, I believe a non-Chinese woman and a Chinese man. Um, I guess, I guess how does your exploration of these kind of cross-cultural relationships, first of all, what, what prompted that exploration? And then also how does that exploration change depending on, I guess, your decision on the protagonist?
1: Yeah. You know, I wanted to write those stories. um, Well, so yeah, I mean, you, yeah. So those two are the ones that are set um, or feature more prominently sort of American characters. And I think for me, I mean, they, so many of these stories, you know, they, they weren't necessary. I didn't set out necessarily with um, with a particular x y z that I wanted to impart, but I, it was something that fascinated me about a particular voice um, or even a situation, and so the story kind of unraveled from there. In the case of um, Field Notes on a Marriage, it actually started from a very particular place. I was, um, I, I recall. You know, throughout my time in China, um, being struck by the prevalence of these Chinglish signs, which you know you encounter them in museums or on the street, and sometimes very involved, long ones. In the case of museums, that they you would they would almost read like poetry, and um, just I was I kept imagining, you know, like the the voice of a character who who was encountering these um, and had the sense of bafflement and also delight and trying to imagine who is this who is this woman like um where has she come from and so and as i wrote the story just you know creating this this backstory for okay well so she was um she was an anthropologist in america who had who had been married to a chinese man and their relationship had fallen apart and now she's in his home country trying to make sense and of this situation and 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 finding you know as you identify like often um just realizing the extent of the challenge of um, of that of you know the, just the gaps in, in knowledge um, of another person and not to mention another culture and I think to me like even even though I mean those are some of the stories in the book that most clearly are talking about cross- cultural misunderstandings I suppose you could say but to me I mean I think they really are so much just really fundamentally about what it's like to be a, a person in, in that story in love with another person but not quite understanding them and and in others um, you know, having your own, like in Beautiful Country, for example, you know, meeting, meeting um, a young Chinese woman living abroad in um, Arizona and on a road trip with her lover and finding a lipstick in his car that doesn't belong to her and knowing that, you know, it means something, but not, not wanting to believe it. I just, you know, I think there are all those, I guess what what fascinated me about those relationships and was just, I mean, I I think there are um, absolutely miscommunications in the ways that we project desire onto each other um, and try and understand each other and often fall short. But I I think in so many ways, like those are just human um, Hmm. kind of hits and misses. And, and I think the background of, of being Chinese versus American, I think that's there too. But ultimately I, I think so much of the gaps that, um, you see in the stories fundamentally are just like ones that are the product of, of being two people who are not, who are not the same.
0: Um, I would like to talk now about a couple stories, I think relate to, I'm going to say digital technology, but maybe more how people interact with, um, you know, the digital space. I'm specifically thinking of, of hotline girl with the character who works in the government satisfaction hotline um and land at big numbers There's obviously about a retail investor playing in with 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 the stock market um you know i think i think one might be tempted to kind of see these as oh these are indicative of what tech and the interactions with technology are like in 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 china um i guess you know do you do you, do you see these as discussions of what it's like in china to interact with technology or i guess with these spaces or are they kind of talking more about Universal phenomenon. Um, maybe I think, in some ways, talking about the ups and downs of the stock market, um, it's pretty hard to say that's only a Chinese phenomenon. After the whole, you know, GameStop, uh, <laughs> GameStop, you know, ups and downs. Sure,
1: yeah. I think in those stories, I mean, broadly throughout the collection, I think I was really interested in my time in China to see how technology shaped society and your own, just like the texture of your daily life, right? And so. Um, I mean, and of course, often through, just through your phone, or as we see in Hotline Girl, through screens um, in a more public way. Um, that really fascinated me. I think there's in, so the two stories that you mentioned with Hotline Girl. I think you see it um, technology shaping um, this young woman's life in a more political way. So, for for folks who haven't read the book, um, it's set in a near a near futuristic sort of city that's similar to Beijing. And it's she's a young government bureaucrat working at a call center, a satisfaction center dedicated to dealing with citizen complaints, um, which, instead since you are asking before, is one of the details that um, was definitely inspired by uh, my time as a reporter just running across references to these sorts of um, government centers, which I thought were so fascinating. Anyway, um, but I, yeah, I mean, it, it always really struck me living um, in China, just how much um just what a media saturated environment was with especially the sorts of um messages that you would get from state media which were often these like really cheerful chirpy bulletins um which functioned to you know remind you about um either health tips issued in like this very grandmotherly way or sometimes it was things like cute kittens um but just like a constant stream of these sorts of viral kind of news um blips or um yeah that kind of content that um to me, was often just like at really jarring um, odds with the actual day-to-day experience and some often sometimes very harsh realities around you. And so that's what you see in holland Girl, very much like that sense of juxtaposition and, and you know, these omnipresent screens uh, that are issuing these kinds of bulletins, these chirpy bulletins that are at odds with what, as readers, we, we learn to see more about this um, environment and, and what is, in fact, more disturbing. And lies underneath the surface. So, but then in, in a story like Land of Big Numbers, where we meet this government bureaucrat who is who gets very caught up in the stock market and investing through apps on his phone. I mean, to me, I think that speaks to another side of technology, just the way, like, kind of the, the gamification um, in some ways of life um, that is by no means unique to China, um, and of course is in his case. I mean, leads to the sense of um, you know money money. I think for that character. Was always something that seems um, sort of fictional, and um, um, because he, he wasn't raised with wealth, and so it seems like something that is so intangible to him. In. And that is just, of course, augmented by the sense of it all happening um, on his phone, and that um, the sense of giddiness and the sense of it not being bound by gravity and i think yeah and and a sense of addiction too which i think is uh, something that's really relatable um to people even though who's who haven't necessarily experienced like gamestop or um like jifang gotten caught up in the currents of the chinese stock market um and i think that gamification feeling and um and also the corresponding feeling of hollowness too that can accompany um you know our really close um just the intermingling of technology in, in our lives and ambitions you see that too in a story like Lulu right where the um character um the title character ends up um becoming very much drawn into the internet and using it as a political tool um and also her brother who is drawn into the internet in a very different way in a much more consumerist way um in and, and becomes this professional online video gamer. Just that I think, you know, of course, there, and there are stark contrasts in all these journeys, but I think what spoke to me in the writing of these stories was also there, there, this feeling that there was a shared undercurrent of this of um, the internet just exerting this incredibly strong pull on people and also at times, you know, just like the feeling of addiction and also um, a feeling of, of doubt too in, in what just... You know, it it, this we see it act in really different ways in in these different characters' lives, Um, and I think ultimately, like it's it's such a powerful thing, and it also can be such a lonely thing.
0: Um, One more question about about the stories in the collection: Um, there are a couple surreal or or more surreal stories. As if you're thinking about New Fruit and uh, Gubeko Spirit um you know one might be tempted to read these stories as uh allegories for <laughs> sentiments in Chinese society um but but in making the choice to kind of write these more surreal vignettes um what were the kinds of messages or themes you were trying to convey
1: yeah you know i think they didn't start out necessarily as me you know wanting to convey a xyz message again i think because you know it, Ultimately, I want the, wanted the book to just to be stories that can transport mm-hmm. readers and entertain readers. And and um, to me, I like I, I think some of the questions that animate the story. So I mean, I like they're definitely. I think there are, there there are political allegories both the stories that you mentioned, but also for me the 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 ideas that behind them. You know, the idea of a supernatural fruit that comes into a neighborhood and transforms people's relationships and lives the way we see a New Fruit. Um, or the idea of these commuters who get ludicrously stuck underground on a subway platform for months on end for purely bureaucratic reasons. I mean, to me, those sorts, like, the extremities of those stories, in many ways, was me try- trying through fiction to evoke some of the absurdities and extremities of, of life in Chinese society, where so much, I think, of of life does have that surrealist edge and the sense that, you know, really... Anything could happen, and, and often does happen, and um, and that's something that can be magical at times, um, surprising and delightful, right? And I think any for any of your listeners um, who have spent time living in the mainland, like life can be peppered with all those sorts of, um, you know, surprises. Like, say, for example, in this book, an elderly farmer who's <laughs> building an airplane from scratch, um, and we see that in New Fruit, where the fruit first begins, um, life in a certain way and over and elicits this feeling of, of delight and joy. And over, um, over time becomes something more sour. Um, literally not, not literally. Um, but in terms of the emotional journey for, for, for the, um, the locals in Beijing who are eating it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that was one impulse that was, driving the writing behind the stories, but it's, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, they absolutely did become, um, in many ways sort of political fairy tales or, or allegories. And I think that's particularly true of, of Gubeko spirit, which, you know, tells the story of these commuters who get stuck, um, underground and, um, become sort of prisoners of the, of the Beijing subway system. And to me, it was, um, you know, as I was writing it, I mean, it, it did start of course with this, this feeling, which, um, you know, of me one day looking, sitting on a subway and looking around, and thinking, you know, what what would happen if we got stuck, and wondering what would unfold from there, and how quickly um, social norms would break down, and just like literally, what sort of society would we form, and um, yeah, and just thinking through some of those questions as I was writing it. But also, that story wound up to me being, you know, written in in, um, in many ways as trying to um, wrestle with the question of, you know, what it is like to live in authoritarian. Society where so many of your choices are constrained and where at the same time, though, there are um, many um, things that are working to make you comfortable within the system. And so um, in kubeko spirit, that takes the form of state propaganda and how um, these passengers who get stuck underground end up becoming lionized by state media. Um, and we see them also... You know, having many creature comforts delivered through donations that flood in. And so um, and on the one hand, it's it's like quite literally a story of um, people get stuck underground. It's a story about like public transportation and this, um, you know, the Beijing subway system, which always fascinated me living there um, just as this like symbol of modernity and also one that authorities have worked for so long to try and um, in many ways, quote-unquote civilized that was um that was one story actually did write um when i was with the journal was um story about a competition that um authorities had had uh, launched to try and find you know the most civil quote-unquote civilized um subway passengers um just part of a sort of this extended history in um, beijing of of the government doing things like you know launching these um public propaganda campaigns like with penguins motifs to try and get people to line up or playing classical music to try and make people um, act in more refined ways um, while riding somewhere. anyway all this history which i thought was fascinating but um yeah i mean i, I think this this you know over, over the arc of the story like we see how people ultimately like they first find themselves in this incredibly um repressive situation but over time grow more comfortable and, and um you know I, I think for when speaking with um, friends back home in the states, and especially since coming back to the states, I mean, I that so living living in um, while I was living in China, I mean, that was something that always struck me was this 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 sense that um, you know of, of really bafflement from um, friends in the states, um, you know, asking what is it like to live in a society as repressive as China, um, and. How, that, uh, you know, the sense that it was really like this bleak, um, you know, sort of 1984 kind of experience and um, trying to explain the, the, this gubicub spirit in many ways is, is my attempt to try and, and really paint a different picture of, of what it is like and can be like and often is like for many Chinese in which it really is, um, you know, it's a world where the easiest thing in the world is, is actually to become quite comfortable and to accept the realities um, at hand. So, so
0: one final question, and um, it's based on the fact that you're both an accomplished author of fiction and an established journalist. Do you think that, how has being a journalist um, affected your, your experience as an author? Or perhaps do you look at journalism differently after becoming a writer of fiction? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. I don't think I look at journalism differently since writing fiction. Um, I will say, I mean, for me, I think the two have always gone hand in hand. I mean, I love, I love journalism. And, you know, in my time as a reporter for the journal, just getting to travel all through China and speak to so many different kinds of people and just, you know, to have that kind of insatiable curiosity and be allowed to exercise it felt like an incredible privilege. And all the more so now, given how my colleagues. Um, have since been kicked out of the country along with many other reporters from um, major American newspapers. And so, yeah, I mean, I I guess if anything, looking back now, I just feel um, really grateful for the chance to have written the book. um, Yeah. I mean, it it really, just to think of how, how extraordinary a chance it was. Um, But the, yeah, I mean, I I think the, the ways that being a journalist inflected my fiction writing for me, it was really, with Land of Big Numbers, I mean, it was just this feeling of having spent years in a country where my job was to try and convey truths about the world to readers far away, and feeling like so often the substance of what you know we we could write about, um, whether it was like the trade war or um, you know Chinese state policy and all this really macro level stuff. I mean, really felt so often like it wasn't. It was only. Capturing like a, frag, a fraction of, you know, the of course the immense complexity of society there, but also what made it compelling and like what made it so um like such a such a just a really extraordinary place to live, right? And like to get to meet people who just on a daily level really astounded me um with inventiveness and creativity and passion and ingenuity in, in ways that I think were just And humor, too, right? And also, like, a sense of play, which readers encounter in this book, which I think can be hard to see from a distance and especially hard, perhaps, to see through headlines, but is so much of what makes modern China what it is and, for me, made it home and and made me truly love the country, um, despite its government um, and despite, of course, all of the frustrations that um, come with life there. But it's just, I mean, it's so... It is a place that um, I, I think for me it just like I felt, you know, as a reporter, I was I was constantly taking notes and um, being struck by what was around me. There's this um, quote by Carlos Fuentes, which I always return to: um, "Extreme attention is the creative faculty, and its condition is love." And for me, that that is journalism. I mean, of course, is is paying attention, but also as a fiction writer too, I think is is this feeling of of just looking around and, and seeing what's or what's around you as meaningful and vivid and important. And for me, seeing it a million times over and just wanting some wanting to share it in whatever vehicle I could. And so fiction ultimately became that um, for me. And and yeah, I mean, big numbers, of course, is is the results. But um, yeah, I I think for me, just underlying both the fiction and, and the journals was just feeling like constantly that there were a million stories that that demanded telling and, and wanting to try and share.
0: So with that, um, that ends our interview with Tipping Chen, author of Land of Big Numbers. Um, one actual final question. Um, Tipping, what's next for you and where can people find your work? Yeah,
1: thank you for that question. So um, I'm still working full time for The Wall Street Journal. And so um, and I'm still writing fiction and including um, something that is not set in China, which is exciting, um, though it's been harder, of course, uh, with uh, every, everything being harder now with the pandemic. Um, but that's, yeah, that'll be something to stay tuned for, uh, hopefully. And um, yeah, if, if readers want to find me, I'm at um, T E P I N G Chen on Twitter. And then um, also my website is just myname.com.
0: You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural, and you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and are listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends who want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information soon on who's coming up next on the podcast. But before then, Tipping, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.